six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a public affair. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We have a fabulous show lined up today. Um, At this time of year, I think so many of us think about the road trip, driving to see your friends or family uh, for the holidays. Um, It also, this time of year when we always pile in the car, reminds me of the summers when we all pile in the car and the national, you know, uh, ambition of driving with your family through the national parks and driving out to the coast, all these things that we do that is really sort of the fabric of American life. And I have two teenagers at home and sometimes the best times with my family are these family road trips. Uh, but what does it really mean when you hit the road and what do the roads impact have on all of us in America um, and beyond. Today, we are talking with the author, um, Ben Goldfarb. It's his new book has just come out called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Hello, Ben. Thanks hey, for us. Hey, Carousel. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. And let me tell everyone a little bit more about you. So your book um, has been named one of the best books of 2023 by the New York Times and so many other entities. Again, the book is called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Um, And you are a a conservation journalist. Your writings um, have appeared in The Atlantic, Science, The New York Times, The Washington Post, National Geographic, more and more. And um, your prior book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, was the winner of the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Literacy in Literacy Science Writing Award. So it's really just, it's sort of great to have someone that is so focused on science, but also how it interacts with everyone's lives every day. So I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, both of them. Oh, well, thank you so much for saying that. (laughs) That means a lot. It was really fun to read. Um, So I want to sort of start with some numbers for everyone. Um, There are about 40 million miles of roadway in the U.S. You sort of start the book with these details. Pretty heavy. And the United States hosts six and a half million of those miles, the world's longest road network. Um, But world's Roads aren't just part of the world we live in. Like I was talking about, sometimes we don't even notice them, but they have such a devastating toll on our world. I was shocked when I was reading how roads kill more animals than any other environmental disaster. You think about when you see floods and fires and all of these things, but roads are the biggest killer. And um, cars have made, ooh, Jay, we're having a little bit of echo there. Um, cars have made deer. Uh, North America's most dangerous wild animal. I feel like that fact will stand out for all of us in Wisconsin. Responsible for three times more deaths than bees and wasps, 40 times more deaths than snakes, 400 more deaths than sharks. So all the people that are afraid of bees and sharks, actually the danger (laughs) is getting in your car and killing the deer and the impact that it has on you. Um, So I just sort of want to start start out with all those numbers and all those figures to help everyone in Wisconsin sort of realize why I think this book is not just important for everyone to read, but 
why we're talking about it on today's show and why it's important for us to be thinking about it. Um, and can you start us sort of on a big picture of what is road ecology? I had never heard of that term until I read this book. Sure. So, you know, road ecology is this, this relatively new field of science that studies how all of those roads you mentioned, you know, the 40 million miles around the world and the 4 million miles we have here in the U.S., how all of those roads shape nature uh, and ecosystems and wildlife and, you know, kind of the most obvious manifestation of how roads and nature interact, right, is, is roadkill, you know, all of those deer collisions that you were you were talking about in Wisconsin, you know, is definitely one of the, the country's leaders in, in uh, per capita uh, deer vehicle collision. So, you know, totally a, a relevant local issue. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, that roadkill is just the, the tip of the iceberg, you know, you've got noise pollution from roads that's, you know, that's really uh, altering uh, wildlife habitat and human lives as well. You've got all of that road salt that we pour on our highways as a, as a de-icing agent, right? We, we apply something like 20 million tons uh, of road salt to our highways every, every winter in the U.S. And, you know, Midwestern states tend to be, uh, you know, some of the heaviest users. And all of that road salt, or at least a lot of it, you know, runs off into surrounding rivers and lakes and streams and, you know, turns them brackish, which is definitely a big problem in, uh, in Wisconsin as well. Uh, you know, you, you've got you've got the genetic fragmentation that roads cause, you know, all of these kind of walls of traffic preventing animals from finding each other and, and mating. So, you know, road ecology is this, again, this field of research that looks at all of those different relationships and connections and, and tries to figure out how we start to, you know, mitigate or address some of the, the ecological damage that roads and traffic cause. So. When I started reading the book as someone, right, that isn't part of the road ecology world and I don't talk about this and on a daily basis and I'm reading the book and I'm talking to my friends about it and their first reaction was, oh, is that an anti-car book and we shouldn't have cars and we shouldn't drive fast? And, and, <laughs> and how do you explain to people that, that that's part of it? I mean, roads exist so people can drive their cars, but it's so much bigger than that. It is. Yeah. You know, and I think that, I mean, look, I think it's appropriate in some ways that you began the show by talking about the great American road trip, right? All of us getting in cars to, you know, see nature. And, and you know, that's so, as you said, sort of fundamental to the, the fabric of American life. And look, I do that too, right? I get in the car, I live in rural Colorado and, you know, my wife and I moved down here in, in large part to, you know, go hiking and skiing and camping and fishing. And, you know, the way that we access all of that stuff is by driving to it, right? I mean, roads are sort of inextricable from how we experience nature, even as they're helping to destroy nature. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, at times I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm anti-car, you know, insofar as, uh, you know, I, I, I've killed animals and felt horrible about it and felt like I was, you know, part of this gigantic global problem. But at the same time, you know, we're all, part of this this system, you know, and, and roads and cars bring us a lot of benefits. And, you know, we use them to all kinds of useful purposes. And and uh, we're all, you know, kind of complicit in this automotive world that we've created. And so, you know, I definitely try to avoid shaming anybody for driving because I do uh, a lot of it, a lot of it myself, you know. So to me, I think that, uh, you know, the task before us isn't necessarily to, uh, you know, get rid of cars altogether. I don't think that's possible um, or necessarily desirable. You know, I think the task is to figure out, okay, if, you know, if we are inevitably going to drive in this, you know, auto-centric country we've created, how do we make that less catastrophic for all other species? 
I mean, I think that that ending is exactly it of understanding that, you know, if if we don't open our eyes and understand the problem, then we can never come to a solution. And your book does such a nice job of saying, like, hold on a second, y'all. Like books, uh, you know, roads, roads are sort of part of the fabric of America, but we can be more thoughtful about how we build them. We can do so many other things. And it's not just about driving on them. There, there's so many other implications. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I think that's I think that's exactly right. And it's about, you know, it's about seeing roads in a new way, right? I think that, you know, we look, we use roads every day, right? And so we don't really notice them and we don't notice the toll that they they take on on wildlife. You know, we've all driven past the deer carcass or the raccoon or the squirrel, right? And we're, you know, we're kind of blind to all of those other lives, I think, just as we're sort of blind to roads themselves. And so we don't really account for, uh, you know, for for the, the dramatic toll that uh, driving is having on nature. But, you know, as you said, I mean, look, we kill more than a million vertebrate animals every day in this country with our with our cars, you know, and to say nothing of all the insects. I mean, there's li- there's literally nothing that we do that, you know, kills more wild animals directly than than drive. And, and exactly. so, uh, you know, this I think this book is about making us see roads and roadkill and cars in a in a new way, given that, uh, you know, we've kind of willfully blinded ourselves to those impacts for so long. I really I, I feel like this book is groundbreaking in that sense of that so many times on the show, we talk about so many political issues and right all the hot button current topic issues. And I don't recall ever having a conversation and helping me understand the impacts of our roads. So let's sort of dive in that because there's so much in the book to get to. The book starts out sort of talking about migration, maybe something people maybe would think about more, but how is it that roads impact migration? And can you actually tell us a little bit about what migration is? It's not something that every animal does. Right. So, you know, migration is sort of this, it's this seasonal movement that animals undertake, you know, going from point A to point B, back and forth, just looking for resources, you know, and look, just like us, animals have to move around to find food and habitat and their mates and all the things that they need to to make a living, you know, and, and migration can occur at all kinds of different scales, you know, in I, in the book, I write about these, these big migrations of deer and elk and, and uh, antelope that happen, you know, in states like Wyoming and Colorado and Utah, where these animals are moving, you know, hundreds of miles across the landscape, you know, going from their, their summer habitat up in the mountains to their, you know, their winter habitat in the, in the valleys, um, you know, and there are hundreds of animals, you know, walking along these, these long paths every single year, crossing rivers, climbing mountains, you know, just these epic trips. So that's kind of one scale that migration's happening. But, you know, there are smaller migrations too, right? You think about in Wisconsin and, you know, so many Eastern and Midwestern states, you know, there are all of these amphibian migrations, you know, frogs and salamanders that, uh, you know, on warm, wet spring nights are, you know, are, are hopping, uh, you know, from their kind of upland forest habitat down to their local breeding pond. And, you know, those migrations might only be you know, a couple hundred yards of, you know, wood frogs or spotted salamanders or, or peepers or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, at both of those scales, both for those those deer and elk that are moving hundreds of miles and the, you know, amphibians that are moving, you know, a couple hundred yards, potentially, roads are, are getting in their way, right, and preventing them from completing these journeys that they need to make. You know, roads are, are both killing them, right? You think about, you know, a poor salamander crossing, uh, you know, a road on a, on a wet spring night and and getting run over. 
but you know in, in some cases like with with deer in wyoming you know that kind of constant wall of traffic prevents them from getting where they need to be and, and they might starve in some cases because they can't you know reach the habitat that they have to access so you know again that road might only be a hundred feet wide from shoulder to shoulder but it can cut off animals from reaching you know hundreds of thousands of acres of land and, and have uh, an enormous impact that way I really like the point about not just that animals that dared across the road um, get killed, uh, but also the fact that the roads sort of create a barrier, something that you didn't think about. You look at it and you go, well, where's there? There's no wall here. Sometimes there is literally a wall, but if there sometimes many Wisconsin roads don't have walls, the deers can walk across, but they feel sort of overwhelmed and the roads create this barrier. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And your comment about how they starve to death because they are afraid to cross, be it the noise, the sound, their experience with getting, you know, almost hit before. What is that like? Yeah, you know, I think I think that, I mean, a really good sort of case study that illustrates that point is, you know, is this, this herd of deer that I wrote about in the book that live, that lives in, in the, in the red desert in Wyoming, you know, and these animals, again, they're, you know, these migratory deer that have to lock, walk a, you know, a really long way to survive, especially, you know, in the fall, they have to get down to these, these winter valleys that, you know, are kind of clear of snow where they can find the food they, they need. And, you know, historically those deer would have walked, you know, hundreds of miles more, probably all the way into, into Colorado where, where I live. Um, but, you know, in the 1960s, I-80 was built uh, across, uh, you know, across the country. And it, it just totally cut off them. It cut them off from that, you know, those those winter valleys. And, and you know, it, in some ways, it's really almost worse than roadkill itself, right? You could imagine that, you know, like a herd of deer, if they cross, you know, a, a rural two-lane highway, you know, maybe a few of them get hit, but, you know, most of them make it and they find the food they need and they do okay. But, you know, what's happening along I-80 is that, again, it's this, just this constant wall of traffic, right? People crossing the continent doing their, you know, their great American road trip. Uh, and, you know, because deer can't find a gap between cars to run across this, you know, giant four-lane interstate, uh, they don't cross at all. And, you know, and, and they kind of pool up against the the side of the highway almost like you know water against a dam or something trying to find a way through and they don't uh, you know they don't they don't make it and you know in some years up to 40 percent of the herd will actually starve because they just can't find those you know those those gentle uh, valleys to the to the south because the interstate gets in their in their way and so you know that as as biologists have called it that that moving fence of traffic that constant wall of vehicles is again you know almost almost worse uh, to wildlife than uh, than roadkill itself in some cases because they can't get to where the food is on the other side of the highway and beyond exactly yeah exactly and there's um just sort of following the progress of the book, the book then sort of talks about where there are literally walls and, and bigger senses of isolation ta talks about sort of the 405 freeway and the 101 freeway in Los Angeles, where we were talking before the show, I grew up in LA, uh, spent many, many hours of my life, too many hours of my life on the 405 and the 101 um, and the Santa Monica mountains. But, and there the sense of it, 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 I think it sort of call you call like boxing them in that they they create this island and I I always think to myself oh well there's plenty of land there that's left here on the side they'll just never attempt to cross the 
101 and 405. They'll just stay in these these areas that, you know, is designated for them in L.A. But that proves disastrous as well. Talk to us about that. Right. So that that chapter of the book about California is about is about this population of mountain lions that lives near uh, near Los Angeles in the, in the Santa Monica Mountains, you know, and and there the, the problem is, you know, really, as you said, they've you know, these these animals, these mountain lions, which need a lot of a lot of area, right? They're, you know, big predators that need to eat, you know, a lot of a lot of deer. So they need to roam large territories. Uh, and, you know, they've really been cut off from the rest of California by these, you know, these kind of oceans of traffic, right? You've got, uh, you know, the 101, as you say, the 405, you know, some of the busiest freeways on earth uh, that that have kind of turned this little patch of habitat in the Santa Monica's into effectively an island. Uh, and, the you know, the reason that's so bad for these mountain lions is that, you know, there, no new mountain lions can cross the, the freeway and enter the island, right? So these poor mountain lions are stuck mating with their own daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters because, you know, no no new unrelated animals can cross the 101 and, you know, refresh the gene pool, essentially. And so, you know, these cats have become very inbred over over time as a result. Uh, you know, they've started to suffer genetic defects and they've, you know, they've kind of entered uh, what scientists have called this, you know, extinction vortex, right? This long-term doom spiral because they just, you know, can't mate with any uh, unrelated animals and they've become, you know, so inbred that they're almost like, they're like pharaohs or something, you know, where they're just, they've been mating with their own relatives for, for generations and now they're in, they're in deep trouble. And this is in the book, we sort of start mentioning solutions that exist. And right. uh, you talk about Banff in um, Canada and the amazing sort of land bridges. And I must say the last time I was in LA, I have a friend that lives uh, in Calabasas and I was uh, driving on the 101 and I saw signs of construction for this road bridge. And my initial thought was, how a, a road bridge, how are you going to convince the animals to take this road bridge? Talk to us about what that is and how it actually works. Right. So in, in LA, you know, now they're building, as you say, they're, they're building basically this wildlife crossing, you know, this giant overpass that's going to go from the Santa Monica's across the 101, uh, you know, and then connect those animals ideally with mountain lions elsewhere in California so that, you know, new mountain lions can cross that, that bridge and enter the population and just, you know, refresh that, that gene pool. And, you know, these kinds of wildlife crossings are, they're really effective. You know, we, we've, I mean, as you say that, you know, we've seen them be applied uh, in Banff National Park in, in Canada, which is, you know, split in half by the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, you know, lots of Western states like Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Nevada, California, you know, you, you name a Western state basically. And they've, you know, they've built uh, a bunch of these, these wildlife crossings. And, you know, again, they're, they're super effective. Animals do use them definitely. Um, you know, one of the really important things there is that typically you've got fences on either side of the road that kind of lead animals to the crossing. You know, it's not like the animals necessarily find the overpass on their own. It's really that the fences guide them there. But, you know, we know we know this this kind of solution works really well. We know that it dramatically reduces roadkill. Uh, and so, you know, it makes it makes highways safer for drivers as well. Uh, and, it, you know, it helps animals uh, get to where they, they need to go and uh, complete these these migrations that we've been talking about. So, you know, that that overpass in California, you know, that's going to be the largest wildlife crossing in the United States. Uh, and it should be done by uh, by 
2025 is what they're shooting for. And, and hopefully it will uh, save this population of mountain lions as well as you know, all of the other animals in the ecosystem, you know, bobcats and coyotes and deer and lizards and, you know, small birds that don't fly very well. You know, everybody's going to use this, this crossing and, and hopefully it'll reconnect the entire ecosystem of Southern California. I mean, you're creating, I have this vision of like, the the bridge onto Noah's Ark of all these animals, <laughs> the way you describe it, how how do I, I know you mentioned about the the fences guiding yeah. them, but how do you entice the animals to still walk over a road that is still and we'll get to all these details, but still busy and congested and noisy and all of these things. How how does this happen? Yeah, it's a, you know it's a, it's such a good question, and uh, you know I think I think that a big part of it is creating these these wildlife crossings that are enticing to the animals, right? Making them look like you know kind of authentic ecosystems that are attractive, you know. And and in in LA, they've they've definitely thought uh, a lot about that, you know, because as you say, it you know it's this incredibly uh, busy, well-trafficked freeway that has lots of, you know, noise and light pollution that, you know, might deter animals from trying to cross it. So, you know, there, when they, as they, as they're building the crossing, you know, they're including all of these vegetated screens and rock walls and berms and other landscaping features designed to kind of hide the freeway from the animals and, uh, you know, just make it attractive. And, you know, they're including trees and shrubs and logs and rock piles, you know, all of these different habitat features that just make this, you know, this piece of land look uh, as, as enticing as and, and authentic as possible, you know, as one of the, uh, the designers put it, you know, it's not really, it's almost a, a kind of a misnomer to think of it as a bridge, you know, it's really more like this giant chunk of architecturally solid terrain that cars just happen to pass through. And I, th I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. We're talking right now with Ben Goldfarb about his latest book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Um, we would love to hear from you. Um, what are your thoughts about the impacts of roads? What are your thoughts about when you're driving in Wisconsin and beyond uh, and the animals uh, that you see and the impact of the road in your community? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at area code 608 256-2001, extension 9. Mary Jo is ready to answer your call. We have Jay and Sholly in the studio. Um, they can patch you in, or you can also pass a message on to them. Um, if you don't want to join us on the radio, you can pass a message through to me and Ben, more importantly, Ben, not me, um, and we can answer your questions. So please do give us a call if you have any thoughts. Area code 608 256 2001 extension nine. Um, I want to break down a little bit about why this, all these, this conversation that we're having isn't just about the animals. And um, the book does a nice job of talking about how these crossings are not just a win for the animals, but it's, it sort of says like a win, win, win of it wins politically, it wins economically, you know, the, the danger to animals is also a danger in so many other levels. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as, as you said, uh, kind of in the intro, you know, deer are 
the most dangerous wild animals in the country, right? And it, obviously it's not the deer's fault. It's, you know, it's the car's fault, but obviously, uh, you know, the deer are are involved and, you know, every year there are between two and 400 drivers killed in, in deer crashes, uh, deer vehicle collisions. And, you know, these, these crashes are also really expensive events as well as dangerous events. You know, the average deer collision costs society more than $9,000 in, uh, you know, vehicle repairs and hospital bills and insurance costs and tow trucks and, you know, the loss to hunters of that, that animal as well. And, and the rest of it. So, you know, these, you know, I mean, it's, you know, more than eight, $8 billion every year to the American public in, uh, you know, in, in sort of large animal crashes. So, you know, if you can build these wildlife crossings that, you know, prevent all of those, those crashes, or at least a lot of those crashes, you know, you can really save the public a lot of money, right? It, you know, it used to be, I think that, you know, engineers looked at these wildlife crossings and, and kind of balked and said, you know, hey, wait a second, are we, you know, we're really going to spend, you know, a few million dollars helping animals cross the highway. I don't, I don't know about that. But, you know, now uh, there's lots of cost benefit uh, analyses that basically show, you know, look, if you can build these things, they, they pay for themselves really quickly by, you know, again, preventing uh, all of these, these expensive, dangerous crashes. And, you know, I think that's, that's helped uh, a lot of states uh, become more interested in these, these kinds of solutions as well. I mean, it's always, it always is hard in my mind when I'm reading these books, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to do it because it's, it saves money. But I, appreciate that this is how right this is how the game is played and this is how you get more people to understand and support the project by acknowledging the economic benefit of 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 saving animals and of not you know having roadkill yeah you know i think that's one of the great things about road ecology and this you know this kind of this movement to prevent wildlife vehicle collisions is that you know it's it's truly nonpartisan in a lot of ways, right? It's, you know, it's this cause that everybody can kind of support, you know, nobody wants to hit, uh, hit an animal, obviously. Um, and, you know, in states like Wyoming, some of the, some of the, the most passionate supporters of these kinds of projects have been, have been hunters, you know, who again, you know, yeah. care a lot about healthy deer and elk populations. And so it's like, what other, you know, what other environmental initiative is you know, sort of equally beloved by hunters and the humane society, you know, there really aren't too many uh, out, out there. And I think that's, you know, one of the great things about this cause. And I think it's one of the reasons that you're seeing it gain a lot of momentum. You know, there's a, there was a, a lot of funding um, for, you know, wildlife crossings and connectivity in the, in the 2021 uh, bipartisan infrastructure act, um, you know, because uh, sort of both parties recognize the, the importance of these, these sorts of projects. It's truly not a, a partisan issue, uh, you know, in, a, in our, our pretty polarized society. Yeah. It's refreshing, refreshing yeah. to have that. Um, and Again, this is why I'll say the book saying one more time, Crossing How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet, because I really do think this is a conversation uh, that I'm not having anywhere else that I've never heard before. I do hope everyone gets a chance to read the book and to have these conversations and really educate themselves about all of this. So we've talked about, you know, the big animals, the mammals that you're hitting on the road, but there's, you've hinted about there's so many more animals involved. Talk to us about, you know, as I'm reading the book and I'm writing my notes of like, save the prey, of like how, you know, we have to save the, the smaller animals because the bigger animals need something to eat and the smaller animals are part of the ecosystem. How important is that? And how impacted are they by the roads? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's hugely important. I mean, I always I always think about some of the most road affected animals being those those amphibians we were talking about earlier, you know, the frogs, the salamanders, the toads, you know, these are animals that, again, often have to migrate, uh, you know, to get to their breeding ponds. And the problem is that, you know, we tend to build our roads, you know, in these low lying places, which is also where water collects and, you know, these animals go to, to mate. Uh, and so, you know, you, you get these just horrific mass squishing events, as they've been called, where, you know, I mean, thousands of, uh, you know, frogs or salamanders get killed in a night, you know, they're all migrating at once. And, you know, even a few cars can, you know, be enough to really crush these, these migrations. So, you know, that's the, that's, I mean, these, these groups of animals, again, and, you know, they're not very conspicuous, right? We don't really notice them. You know, you've, we've all probably driven over, uh, you know, frogs and toads at some point without, without ever, ever noticing it's, it's not like hitting a deer. And, you know, I think as a result, we haven't really paid much attention to them. You know, we've built all of these great wildlife crossings for, you know, deer and moose and bears and, you know, other, other kind of large animals that endanger us as drivers when we hit them. But, you know, because, nobody's ever totaled their car hitting a spotted salamander you know we we tend to uh ignore those animals and haven't built many many wildlife crossings to to help them so you know i think that's that's in some ways you know where we need to be going is thinking about the entire ecosystem you know not just the large charismatic animals that are dangerous to drivers but you know but also the the small uh animals that uh you know are are endangered by our our cars well and it's great to read in the book about how there, there's studying going on and and paying attention to all the small animals that are are um, being impacted by roads in our cars. How do we help elevate that voice? What are what are the data and and things that people can turn to to get a better understanding of what's impacted on our roads? I, I mean, I have no idea if I drive over a dozen frogs every month or if I drive over none. In my mind, I'm thinking I don't remember ever driving over a frog, which can't possibly be true. Right. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, I mean, I, I think that one of the challenges is that it, there's not a ton of data uh, about this problem, right? Because, you know, look, those, those, those little carcasses, you know, tend to be pretty inconspicuous, you know, most state DOTs are, you know, are, are counting deer collisions, but they're not counting, you know, frog collisions, obviously. Um, but, you know, look, one of the, one of the really inspiring uh, trends or phenomena that I came across working on the book and got to participate in myself is, you know, is this amazing uh, sort of trend of, of uh, amphibian movement or, or, you know, frog shuttles, you know, the fact that there are, uh, you know, in, in practically every state, you know, including, I'm sure, Wisconsin, you know, there are these groups that are out there on, you know, warm, wet, rainy nights by, uh, you know, by the, the by wetlands, uh, you know, picking up frogs and salamanders in buckets and, and moving them across uh, roads safely. And, you know, I got to do some of that myself in uh, Portland, Oregon, where there's, there's this, uh, this, this population of northern red-legged frogs that has to cross uh, Highway 30 to get to its wetland. And, you know, there are just uh, dozens of people out there uh, during the migration season, picking these animals up in buckets and moving them across the, the road safely. And it's, you know, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. It's not, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but it's a great way, I think, of, you know, helping these animals, connecting with these animals, getting involved in the issue and, and uh, you know, re remembering that uh, we're not the only, the only animals out there on the road. You know, there are all these other uh, critters that, uh, that are impacted as well that uh, we, we need to be helping. And I'm wondering how I mean, following up with this book, I'm wonder, uh, wondering how we could get involved with this in Wisconsin. So I know I'm writing my notes of I want to look into how we can help those animals migrate. Um, I hope everyone starts thinking about that when they read the book. Um, 
And I think the other sort of critters that we haven't talked about um, are the bugs and insects and everything that hits your windshield. It's so interesting because I do remember when I was younger how many animals would be killed on your windshield when you go even for a half hour drive uh, at, you know, rates more than 30 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. And now I feel like I don't hit as many. I don't need to clean my windshield up as often. And I sort of, I think as a driver, think that's a good thing. Oh, phew, my windshield, I can still see out of it, but that's not a good thing at all. Yeah, it's it, you know, it's a it's a great point. I mean, that's sort of the um, you know that's the the windshield phenomenon is what that idea has been called. You know, this idea that uh, right there's this kind of broader insect decline happening uh, around around the world um, for reasons we don't totally understand, but you know probably have to have to do some combination of habitat loss and you know and maybe overuse of pesticides. Uh, and you know, in, in that case, roads and cars and driving, you know, kind of become this this window into the world that uh, you know reveals this this larger trend uh, of uh, you know of, of insect decline. And you know, I write a lot about that about that in the book as well. You know, the ways that different scientists are kind of turning to roadkill to understand what's happening in in the world around us. You know, when uh, you know when an invasive species enters an ecosystem, you know, you often find it uh, dead on the road, and that's what tells you. That there's uh, you know a kind of a, a novel problem. You know, roadkill is telling us uh, about population shifts in, in species as they're moving north with climate change. You know, it tells us about diseases. You know, like chronic wasting disease. You know, roadkill gets sampled looking for CWD, which is you know occurring in deer. Uh, so you know, roadkill it's it's this tragedy, but it's also this you know, kind of window into our, our world in some ways. And that windshield phenomenon you're talking about is is a is one manifestation of that. What is the book you talk about? Um, I need to find my specific notes here. Roadside habitats and sort of how on the side of the road, there's this whole sort of world happening. Is that, you know, where all these insects may be living that we don't even realize? Potentially, or at least, you know, a lot of them. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, those those roadsides as as being habitats in their own right, right? I mean, so much of the, the Midwest especially is, is uh, you know, corn and soy monoculture. And in, in some cases, you know, those those roadside rights of way are, are the last uh, strips of, of native prairie uh, that are, are left out there. Um, and insects and uh, other critters have definitely found sustenance there you know kind of the the epitome of that is the uh, the monarch butterfly which of course you know migrates uh, across the continent uh, you know north to south and a lot of its uh, you know that a lot of that midwestern flyway follows i-35 you know from Minnesota to Texas uh, and uh, you know those those roadsides are are uh, an important source of, of milkweed and and, uh, and nectar plants but you know at the same time obviously the road is this really dangerous place uh, and you know probably millions of butterflies get get killed by cars so that's you know I think a question we need to ask ourselves is look if we are going to treat the roadside as habitat and you know restore these roadsides you know first can we be certain that uh, you know the benefits of that are outweighing the costs to butterflies, right? Are we not creating an ecological trap that's you know sort of luring them to their death? And you know also what can we do 
to make the roadside safer. You know, if we are going to use roadsides as habitat, you know, maybe that means planting a little bit further back from the, the pavement. Maybe it means, you know, controlling the road salt uh, or limiting the road salt that we're adding to our highways and thus, you know, changing the, the chemical composition of milkweed. You know, maybe it means planting, uh, you know, higher up uh, above the road so that, you know, butterflies don't have to kind of venture through traffic. But, you know, I think those are the things we should be thinking about. How can we manage our roadsides in a way that, uh, you know, ensures they're going to be sources of animals rather than, uh, you know, sinks. We're talking right now with Ben Goldfarb about his latest book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. We did have a caller, um, Rose, pass on a message to us, Ben. He, uh, she wanted to know about, um, talk more about really the root cause of the issue. And I think this is sort of a good transition in our, our last 15 minutes here of solutions that we have and um she really had a question about the impact of the oil industry and the automotive automotive industry and how how do we fight them when they want to keep just building road 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 more and more and more yeah it's, it's a you know it's such a good question rose and you know, it's it's a you know it's a good question for a, a, a climate organizer, honestly. Uh, you know, more than more than more than me. I mean, I you know I think that you know the point that that Rose made in her comment that I you know I don't disagree with is that look, you know, these these wildlife crossings are, are a little bit like Band-Aids, right? That, you know, that the root of the problem is this, you know, this kind of automotive society we have and and that, uh, you know, in, in promoting wildlife crossings, you know, maybe you're just kind of letting the status quo, uh, you know, maintain as it as it is. And I definitely had that thought while I was working on the book, you know, that maybe I should be, you know, more, more, radical in, in my my prescription for the future of automobility. And look, certainly I, th I think that anything we can do to get people out of cars is so important, right? I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a profound believer in, you know, in, in walkable, bikeable cities that are, are really well served by mass transit. You know, we need to get humans out of cars as as uh, as as much as possible. I, you know, Rose is absolutely right about that, and there you know there are really powerful forces uh, that are that that oppose that uh, that that move towards uh, you know towards a less car oriented society. But you know, at the same time, it's just you know it's just so hard for me. I think to imagine a world without cars altogether. It's you know I live in rural Colorado, and it's just you know yes, I could imagine better bus service down here. But I, you know, I just can't really imagine a world in which, you know, there's not uh, a stream of cars going up and down Highway 285, you know, between all of the, you know, small, far-flung towns out, out here, right? It's not like living in New York City, a really dense area that's, you know, clearly well-served by transit. You know, it's this kind of scattered, diffuse, uh, you know, rural society out here that, uh, you know, is just, uh, again, it's just kind of, you know, inherently car oriented, I think, and it's hard to imagine escaping that. So I think that, you know, in these sorts of situations, you know, in rural areas where, you know, we have, you know, kind of uh, lots of, you know, lots of, of car oriented towns um, and we have lots of wildlife, right? We've got these big herds of deer and elk and antelope, you know, that that animals tend to be in the rural places. Uh, you know, these are the situations where those those kinds of wildlife crossings, you know, make the most sense, I think, in, in situations where it's, you know, we're sort of stuck with the car and it's, it's just hard to imagine, uh, you know, a world with reduced automobility. And we've got lots of wildlife that are being impacted by those cars. And I think that, you know, these, again, are the situations where those kinds of wildlife crossings, you know, make the make the most sense. Thanks for your question, Rose, um, and thanks for that. 
answer, um, Ben. And it, again, if anyone else wants to join the conversation, have a question or comment, we would love to hear from you at area code 608 256-2001 extension nine. Um, ben, I feel like part of the answer then is to be more thoughtful and where we put rows. The, the rows that we've put in in America just seem so haphazard or certainly not focused on environmental impacts or impacts on animals. They have other priorities. If we're going to be a road-based world, we need to be more thoughtful and consider the impact of where we put the roads uh, when we put them in. And I think the conversation about the national forest is the most interesting one in the book where I had no idea. My notes here, I wrote, what? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> the U.S. Forest Service operates the world's largest road network at 370,000 miles of road because here, so it's not just about the 101 and these big freeways, but the fact that we weren't even thinking about the animals when we said, hey, America, come come to Yosemite and come to, you know, all these great parks and come see the animals and we'll just build a road so you can bring your RV right here and talk to us about how that happened and the response, the idea of now sort of road decommissioning that is happening there and so many other places. Right. So, you know, in our in our, our national forests, including certainly in, in Wisconsin, you know, I mean, these are some of the most densely roaded areas in the in the uh, the country. It's really ironic, right? It's it's kind yes. of mind blowing. You know, like we, when you look at, you know, when you look at our national forests on kind of a zoomed out map, you know, they're like these, they're these big blocks of seemingly intact habitat. And then you get, you get on the ground there. And, you know, in some cases they have literally higher road densities than the New York city, you know, and a, a lot of those roads are, you know, these old logging roads there, maybe they're firefighting roads, maybe they're, you know, they're recreation roads, uh, you know, and, and look, I, I, I kind of love those roads. You know, I spend Colorado, we're sort of surrounded by national forest land and we spend a lot of our time, you know, driving on those roads to find, uh, you know, high lakes and fishing and fishing holes and, uh, you know, trailheads and the rest of it. Right. So those, you know, those forest roads again are kind of how we experience nature in a, in a lot of ways, but, you know, they also have huge impacts. You know, they, they let people into nature and, and uh, you know, disrupt wildlife that way. And, you know, they kind of, they're constantly eroding and dumping sediment into streams and, uh, you know, smothering fish habitat and, and so on. So, you know, what, what uh, you know, a, a number of nonprofits and the Forest Service are kind of doing in, in fits and starts in, in a lot of cases is starting to, you know, decommission or, or obliterate those, those uh you know, sort of derelict, obsolete roads, you know, taking heavy machinery and kind of chewing up those roads and, and uh, replanting them and just trying to get them off the landscape and, and uh, you know, return them to nature. And working on the book, I went to a few places where that that sort of work is is happening. Uh, and it's it's amazing, you know, 20 years after this road decommissioning work, you know, you could walk through this field and, and have just no idea that uh, there was ever a road there at all. You know, it's the, this beautiful meadow full of grasses and wildflowers and just a, you know, a cool example of how, you know, these, this, these infrastructural mistakes that we made decades ago, you know, don't have to be permanent. We, we can, we can remove these, these structures from the landscape still. And sort of echoing that um, at the end of the book, and of course we can't give it justice in our final minutes here, but the end of the book talks about uh, how roads were created in inner cities of America uh, on an incredibly desegregation and racist vision 
uh, of isolating black communities and sort of saying, okay, let's not fund them. Let's put the highway through their cities, et cetera, et cetera. And now it seems in the very, very recent years, cities have been sort of decommissioning and sort of getting rid of their internal interstates. What does that look like and how does that make things better? Right. So, you know, as I mean, as you say, so, so many of our, our cities, uh, you know, in, in mid-century built these these really destructive and, and often, you know, downright racist freeways yeah. that were designed to, you know, just kind of plow through communities of color. And, and uh, you know, that's a classic story. And, you know, Minneapolis and Miami and Syracuse and, you know, L.A. and a million other cities. And, and Wisconsin, Wisconsin. And Wisconsin, right. Milwaukee. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, and, and in the last few years, you know, we've, we, we have begun uh, or in the last couple of decades, really, you know, cities have begun to remove some of those, uh, you know, those those old viaducts, especially, you know, these big uh, kind of elevated stretches of freeway that are just, you know, sort of these sun blotting monoliths, you know, really uh, sort of impairing human quality of life. You know, and Milwaukee is a, is a, a leader in that uh, in that in that that movement, along with Rochester and uh, Seattle and a few a few other other cities. So. You know, certainly, uh, again, it's another cool example of, uh, you know, the, the recognition that, um, look, these, you know, these structures, yes, we, we, we screwed up, you know, we, we built, uh, we built, you know, disastrous uh, freeways where we shouldn't have with really ill intent, but we can, we can undo some of that, uh, that, that damage still. Well, and it sort of ties the whole book together. This is literally uh, the the final chapter in the book that talks about the human impact. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like, of course, that's intentional to really say, oh, if I didn't persuade you enough to care about the animals, we're all sort of in this together, that roads create noise pollution and air pollution and speed kills people and segregates not just animals, but people. It really sort of brings this whole holistic view of the roads. We're all in it together. We're all being impacted and we all need to work together on the solution. I think you're exactly right, you know, and and look, I, you know, it's it's funny we have this idea in America. I think that that cars equal freedom, right? That yes. like we've got the the romance of the open road, you know, and like Springsteen sings about that, and Kerouac writes about it, you know, and like all of our great writers and artists, you know, celebrate the the highway as freedom. But you know, when you're stuck in in bumper to bumper traffic on you know i-84 or whatever you don't you don't really feel very free right <laughs> uh you know and, and roads kind of imprison us just as they uh, imprison wild animals you know we're all kind of trapped in this this incredibly densely roaded automotive society you know and and a lot of the solutions are are one and the same you know it's i mean just just as we're you know we're, we're trying to use uh you know wildlife crossings to reconnect ecosystems you know we're trying to use urban freeway, freeway removal and you know in cities like milwaukee and syracuse to reconnect human communities and and uh, you know restore uh you know restore pedestrianism in in a lot of these cities that have, have kind of oriented themselves around around the car so you know we're all kind of in it together i think and and it is basically you know our four million mile road network in the united states well and i think you know my sister still lives in los angeles and i live here in madison wisconsin and i think it, the the fact that the roads right aren't the freedom that you think of i i always say that i have a bigger access of the world than my sister does in Los Angeles, because sure, she can 
get to all these things, but it'll take her two and a half hours on bumper to bumper. Track. Like <laughs> me here in Madison, yeah. there's not as many things to pick from, but I can get to all of it in 15 minutes. The road really isn't the level of freedom that we think it is. So what now in our, in our final minutes here, you've helped introduce the term road ecology to me and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of readers now. What do you want people to do next after they read your book? Well, you know, I think I think there are so many great ways to get involved in this issue from so many different perspectives, right? I mean, there, you know, again, there are so many cities now that are, are reconsidering, uh, you know, this kind of historic, uh, you know, mid-century infrastructure that's been so disastrous, you know, and, and certainly, again, Milwaukee is, you know, the, the epitome of that in a lot of ways, right? So, you know, I think I think that we we know now, uh, you know, that uh, you know that some of these these old uh, disastrous freeways need not be permanent. So there, you know, I think there are opportunities to fight, uh, you know, fight some of these destructive communities or destructive roads in your own communities. You know, I think when it comes to the the wildlife stuff, you know, certainly look, we're at this very exciting time now in the, the history of, uh, you know, of, of, of road ecology and, and wildlife movement in, in that, you know, there's, there's more money for dealing with this problem than ever before. You know, there are, I mean, literally hundreds of millions of dollars in the, uh, you know, the, the, the infrastructure uh, act to uh, address this problem. And, you know, and, and uh, the USDOT is still kind of figuring out, you know, where that funding is going to go. And, you know, a lot of it is going to, to Western states, which have been building these crossings for a long time. But there are also, you know, the most recent round of funding, which was just announced earlier this week, you know, also yeah. had money for, you know, Western Pennsylvania and Kentucky and Missouri and Nebraska, you know, states that weren't uh, necessarily leaders in this issue of, you know, of, of wildlife vehicle collision prevention historically, but are becoming more interested in it, you know, and certainly there's a, there's a great opportunity for Wisconsin to become a leader in this field as well. I mean, it's a state with, you know, again, so many deer collisions and black bear collisions and, uh, you know, other, other issues. So, uh, you know, let's, let's, um, you know, I think, I think there's a great opportunity to, you know, get local politicians uh, thinking about this, this issue in a new way. And tell me a little bit more about what, what is happening you're saying just this past week, funding and infrastructure, it's it's exciting to hear that this really is a current issue, a movement that's growing and, and literally moving forward. Right. So there's so so the, the Infrastructure Act, the 2021 Infrastructure Act had three hundred and fifty million dollars for wildlife crossings. And the first third of that basically was was allocated this week. And it's allocated through this competitive grant process where states basically uh, states and native tribes as well, you know, apply for funding to, to build these structures. And so, you know, the, so the kind of the first batch of of grant funding for wildlife crossings just went out the door uh, and you know, a lot of the states that got, you know, big chunks of money were the ones who've been doing this work for a really long time, like Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, uh, you know, these states with big herds of migratory deer and elk uh, and, you know, and really know where these structures need to go. But again, you know, a lot of Northeastern and, and Midwestern states, you know, which historically haven't done much about this issue are getting involved as well. And, and now there are some really exciting planning studies uh, that have been funded in, again, you know, Nebraska and Connecticut and Missouri and Kentucky. So, you know, lots of new states are going to be getting these wildlife crossings in, in coming years. And, uh, you know, hopefully Wisconsin will be one of them. And, and our final minute here, are there any things that are happening internationally? Um, and you talk about Brazil in the book. There's a lot of great conversation about what's happening in um, Australia as well. Just what else is happening internationally that we can, you know, look to and pay attention to? 
Well, you know, we're in the middle of what, uh, you know, some ecologists have called this infrastructure tsunami, you know, this explosive new wave of, of development in countries like Kenya and Myanmar and India and Nepal, you know, these countries that historically haven't built up their highway system like we have, but are starting to do it right now. And, you know, and, and look, I mean, obviously those new highways are really useful to human beings in so many ways. Uh, you know, they connect people with schools and hospitals and markets and so on. But, you know, they also have immense impacts on on wildlife. And so, you know, as these countries develop their infrastructure, uh, you know, I think it's really important that, uh, you know, that that they they do it in, uh, you know, in, in thoughtful ways that avoids those critical habitats and impacts on 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 wildlife. And, you know, certainly there are road ecologists around the world who are thinking about this problem and, uh, you know, trying to guide uh, highway development in as sustainable and thoughtful and, you know, biodiversity sensitive a way as possible. So that's really the next, the, the kind of the next forefront for road ecology is all of these, these, these developing countries that are building out their road systems for the first time and, you know, trying to do it in a way that doesn't uh, jeopardize tigers and gorillas and elephants and so on. Well, it's been amazing talking with you. Thank you so much, Ben Goldfarb. Uh, your new book is Crossing, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the great questions. It's been great talking. And I hope everyone does uh, get a chance to uh, get the book. It's really been a great read. A huge thank you to Jay for engineering, Jade and Charlie for putting the show together, Mary Jo uh, for staffing the phones. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, it's WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And we'll see you again next week, everybody. This is Pacifica Radio's Letters and Politics. On today's show, we continue our series of conversations on the history of Palestine, Israel, and settler colonialism. Today, we talk about the Jewish diaspora, how it came to be, and where it is. My guest for this is Joel Benin, Professor Emeritus of Middle Eastern History at Stanford University. That's next on Letters and Politics.